Let's read together. When I say that, I mean I'm going to read, and you read silently. (laughs) Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We don't know the exact spot of this, this place. It's probably a bit west of Jerusalem. But there's no hard archaeological evidence of of where that town is exactly situated. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now, by the way, these two folks who have now made their way out of Jerusalem would have done so as normal course because... It was mandatory for every Jew, and they were Jews, to go to Jerusalem three times a year, and for sure, during the Feast of Passover or Unleavened Bread. That feast would have come to its conclusion, and it also would have been Sunday, the day that Jesus rose. We'll we'll see more about that in a moment. But it's Sunday, and now they're walking back home from Jerusalem, more than a bit disappointed. And so, verse 17, he asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And many people don't, we don't know the name of uh, Cleopas' companion, but there's a pretty good clue of who it might be based on the account of who was at the cross in John 19. And there it says, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, was at the cross. And so it's likely that husband and wife are now walking back together, back home from the mandatory feast, as families traditionally come together three times a year, and of course, you would depart together as well. We see that in the very beginning of Luke's gospel, don't we, as as the couple of Mary and Joseph make their way for the mandatory feast, and then they come on home forgetting something along the way. (laughs) Verse 18. One of them named Cleopas asked, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and all our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. Now, they don't explain that he said he was going to raise on three days. Just even in, in, in Jewish understanding, they thought there was maybe a chance that a body could be revived or resuscitated and that the soul kind of hangs out for about three days. And, but after three days, write it off. There, there's no chance for any hope. You know, some people may go into coma, different situations. And again, in their understanding of things in a first century mindset of Jews, for them to say third day could mean both things. Both that, And by the way, he prophesied that he'd raise on the third day. And by the way, you know, we're Jews and we know that after three days, hey, it's, it's now hopeless time. So either way, that, that could be their mindset. Verse 22. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Thomazo is the word there. It's not just, oh, I'm excited, amazed. It's also, I'm frightened, amazed. And, and that's more of the shading of that meaning of amazed, is, is there's a definite sense of fear with it. In addition, some of our women amazed us. 
They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So it's interesting as they say all of this, but it begins with their faces are downcast. They're troubled. So there's still a long leap of faith that still awaits these two. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This word explained, sometimes it's uh, translated interpreted is the, the Greek word where we get the English word, a very technical English word, but maybe you hear it from time to time and you wonder, why are we using such a big word to talk about interpreting the Bible? And the word that is used in the Greek by Luke here is hermeneutic. And so when you hear hermeneutics, hermeneutics is the science of trying to deeply study and interpret and apply the scriptures. And here Jesus gives the ultimate hermeneutic or the ultimate time of really opening up and explaining. The, the, the word in its kind of Greek definition has to rouse within you the interest and the faculty for understanding and to rouse within you the desire for learning even more. It's all wrapped up in the, in the beauty of this, of this word. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. Day's almost over. So he went in and he stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And, and clearly, this is an easy reference to the Last Supper and that the words are almost exactly the same. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then... Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. It's nighttime, by the way, and now they're basically, you know, jogging through the, the mountain road. And it's straight uphill. No matter what direction they went, it's straight uphill to Jerusalem, seven miles at night. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It's true! It's true! The Lord has risen, and he has appeared to Simon. But by the way, what a sweetness on Jesus' part. After all Simon had done and experienced and all of the contrition of his heart just a couple days earlier. And, and there on that, that Friday night, if that was the, the, the right timing or the Thursday night, uh, if that was the right timing for, for, for Simon to have really completely denied Jesus. And Luke captures it that as he denied him for the third time, he did it face to face as their eyes locked. And I love how Luke adds this bit of real kindness on the part of Jesus, is that on that Sunday, which the other Gospels don't capture, and this is our only account of this, Jesus makes a special appearance to Simon. 
And that, this is not a story that's told anywhere else in Scripture. We just have this allusion to it. But, but what a, a marvelous act on the part of Jesus. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And perhaps it was when he was breaking the bread that he had to reach out his arms and he broke it. And, and as he reached out his arms, it was at that moment where they saw perhaps the scars, which may have been on his wrists or, or even hands, but, but most likely wrists in the way that they crucified. And, and we know that Jesus' body, according to John 20, still had the scars. He said, hey, look, put, put, put your finger here, Thomas. Look, look at the, the scars that are here. Put your hand in my side. And imagine sitting at the table and, and seeing the hands go out. And, and seeing the, the spike scars in, in his very hands, and that being the thing, perhaps, that then allows you to recognize it's Jesus. It's all true. It's all true. He is alive. There's something very marvelous also that's going on in this passage that Luke does, and it's a tremendous piece of rhetoric and, and incredibly brilliant in the way that he brings it all together. And that it's almost as though as he has the, that first story of, of Jesus as a, as a young man going to the temple, the first story of Jesus, and you have it beginning with a couple, Joseph and Mary, traveling to Jerusalem. And now his gospel ends with a beautiful balance, too, of now a couple, Cleopas and Mary, now traveling back from Jerusalem. And all of these kind of interesting bookends that go on. But there's something else that is kind of redone or rewound here in this passage. And, but before I get to it, and, and again, we're going to be amazed at how Luke does this. But has there ever been an event in your life that you wish that, that you could just go and hit the rewind button on it? Right? I mean, think about something. That my, if I could go back at this moment in my life and hit rewind how different my life would be right now. For, for some of us, these run deep. And it's amazing that we've been able to be cleansed and restored of this. There have been some situations where husbands have, have laid hands on their wives. And I, and I think if that's ever happened, my goodness, how much you wish you could just, just wind back the clock and go back to that moment of time and, and run that forward in a completely different way. Maybe there's situations even with our kids. Maybe there's something you did with your career that completely undermined you. You're like, oh my goodness, if I could just go back, please give me that opportunity to go back and change that one little thing that, that happened there. I've, I've got plenty that are silly, some that are rather grave, uh, some that I've said publicly, some that I've had to go and have retractions at midweek after what I said on Sundays, <laughs> plenty of times, often involving impromptu joking, but... But there was a time, though, that I, I think right before uh, high school began, I was, um, I, was, I was artistic as a kid, and I was all, often commissioned by the school to do caricatures of different things. So, and, and, and so anyway, I, I, I could use that gift for good, or sometimes, believe it or not, I used my gift for evil. And, and there was this one time, a friend of mine who was in Boy Scouts as we were heading into high school, and I did this caricature of him, and it wasn't kind. And it, and it, you know, it talked about, you know, anyway, it was it was a picture of him as as a Boy Scout, and you know, he was kind of wearing short shorts of Boy Scouts and all of this, and 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 I was just going to give it to him, I think, but but one of my friends on the bus 
grabbed it out of my hand, and he plastered it up against the back window of our bus. And my, my friend's bus, the, the, the one who was the Boy Scout, was right behind our bus. Ooh. And so I see through the you know, peripheral vision as I'm like, oh, no, this is not going well. All of that bus, as we're waiting to depart the parking lot, all of that bus rushed up to the front to, to, to try to look at this, this, this uh, caricature. And then they're all like laughing and I'm like, oh, it's like you, I see the scene still in my mind in slow motion as it all goes down. You know, and it's all silent because there's another bus. But then, then I just saw this guy just start to get like angry and he began to stew. And, and that, that guy ended up becoming the biggest lineman in Ocean Township High School football. And he was like the biggest guy by far. And for the rest of my high school career, I lived under the torment of what it was that I did. And I'm like, oh my goodness, if I could just turn back the clock and, and just like rip that thing up as, as I was even thinking about drawing it. Just have, have so much more peace in my life through that. But if you could kind of get in a time machine or go back and, and just change one event, just one, one, one event, what would it be? And what do you think would be the one event, if you could change it, that would change everything? Anybody have any thoughts of what would be like the key event in the course of human events that would really change everything? What's that? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Right. What, what if we could get in that time machine? What if we could kind of rotate it back? You know, and here comes the serpent and he's got all this craftiness going on there. And, and you could just kind of grab, grab not by the lapel, because they're naked, but you just grab them by the shoulder. You know. And <laughs> don't, don't listen. Don't listen. Please, trust me on this. What is about to go down if you eat this is going to affect everybody. It's more than just taking a bite out of a piece of fruit that looks good right now. There are huge consequences that are about to go down here. Now, here's the beauty of what Luke has just written us, is think about those events that happened in, in Genesis chapter 3. And you, you think about what it is that occurred in that most important of all human events in terms of implication for all of us. And to know that Jesus comes as the new Adam. As Luke opens up his gospel, it begins with, not Adam now being tempted, but the new Adam being tempted. That's how Jesus begins his ministry. Right after his baptism, he's sent off into the desert to undergo all the temptation that Adam had endured. Only him, this time, being victorious. There's so many other parallels, but for the sake of this, let's just look at, as, as, we, as we see this, how it is that Jesus hit the rewind button on all of human history. That was a point, in case you were wondering. Let's see if I can go back to it. Sorry. So I don't remember what it was. Uh, okay. So Jesus hit rewind on the entire human race by reversing the curse. He came to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He came as the new Adam to endure all temptation, yet was without sin. To become the acceptable sacrifice for us. To be able to, in a sense, rewind and erase all of the impact of Genesis chapter 3. And now when Luke decides to close this gospel, look at the way that he does it. And, and look at the parallels 
that are, are really unmistakable. And, and I never noticed this at first, but there are certain phrases as, as I you know, looked at this road of Amadeus and, and this idea of all of a sudden God and Jesus coming and walking along at the cool of the day, at the end of the day with, with, with these two, with this couple. And then he begins to question them. And then they eat something and their eyes are opened. Like all of those things. I remember they were always hauntingly familiar to me. But then to to finally recognize, oh my goodness, how amazing is Luke. Now, Now let's look at the story of Adam and Eve. It begins with them having really intimate, wonderful fellowship with God in the place of God's choosing, Eden. Then they eat and their eyes are opened. And then right after that, God comes and walks with them and he questions them. And ultimately, after the questioning, they are banished from Eden. They are in despair and they have to depart from the place of God's choosing. Now, we look at this story. Okay, so that's Genesis 3 in a nutshell. Now, let's look at how everything is now rewound and reversed by Jesus. And how cool it is that Luke captures it here for us. Now, our story begins with this couple. Instead of a couple being banished. A couple as well, just as, as we have the, the first couple. Now we have this couple, Clopas and Mary. I'm making a bit of an assumption, of course, with Mary, but, but, but there is this couple. And we begin by finding them in despair and departure from the place of God's choosing. God chose Jerusalem to be his special and holy place. And now we have a couple having departed from there in despair. And then what happens next? God comes up to them. He walks with them. And he questions them. Jesus comes up. Hey, what are you guys discussing? As you walk along the road here. In the cool of the day. What is it you're talking about? What things? What things are you talking about? And they they go on to have, have this talk. Then, when they sit down and eat, their eyes are opened. And they realize, it's Jesus. Now, their eye opening is not one that results in greater depravity, which is what happened with Adam and Eve. But with Mary and Clopas, their eyes opening now show them the grandeur and the fullness that is Jesus. That had formerly been disclosed from them because of their faithlessness, now to be able to see it. And then it ends with fellowship with Jesus and a return to Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? Like how, I mean, of, of all the ways to end, you wonder why this Emmaus story? Why is this here? And I think it's for God to make sure that we understand everything has been reversed. All of the frustration and futility and depravity that has been our life because we decided to sin by Jesus' resurrection, it has already guaranteed to be reversed in Him. And we get to live with a great and new hope, no longer shackled by the curse itself, but just as we were dead in sin, now we're alive in Christ. Thank you, Eduardo, for the insights in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2. But, but now, now that this is, has happened, we are no longer plagued by that curse. And Luke makes it abundantly clear that, hey, you know what? Go back and rewind your life all you want. Jesus has rewound it. To an even more important place. Not even in your life. But in all lives. As we, as we think of what it is that Jesus does for all people. 
that will respond to him. And ultimately, all of this will be made new in the greater grandeur that still awaits. And that is the, the final chapter of all of this when we go back into Eden itself. When Revelation 21 and 22 really are brought into, into fullness of being and, and that paradise is made new and all of earth and all of heaven is made new. God comes down to earth. He's with man and we see the face of God and we walk and have wonderful fellowship with him. All of that brings us back. This is what Jesus accomplished through his resurrection. That's why there's so many exclamation marks when it says it is true. He has risen. And by the way, how cool is it? He appeared to Simon. Nice move, Jesus. It's all true. Now, it is so important that we really understand the depth of this truth that I want to do one last thing here as, as we look at this passage. It says that Jesus explained to them all things in scriptures concerning himself. <laughs> scriptures means Old Testament. There is no New Testament on Easter Sunday. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have not begun to write. And they won't do so for another 30 years. So the scriptures are the, the old covenant scriptures. And to know that it's all about Jesus. And what he fulfills and the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament passages are not by chance. And one of the more influential books of the 20th century to help people really come to faith in Christ... As a matter of fact, Lee Strobel points to this book as the main factor that brought him to faith in Christ. Lee Strobel is the guy who wrote Case for Faith, Case for Christ, the, those great books. He was a skeptic uh, uh, Chicago Tribune journalist who finally applied all of his journalistic investigation techniques to trying to figure out whether there could be some credibility to Jesus or not. And, and when he finally did, he came to the conclusion, it's all true. He has risen. But the kind of the seminal work that really did have this effect on him was a work by a professor named Peter Stoner. And in the 50s, he had a, uh, a, a teaching gig at Pasadena City College. And he decided with his students, why don't we take a look at some of the prophecies of Jesus and to see if, if they could have been fulfilled by chance, right? Maybe somebody was born in Bethlehem. Maybe somebody could have uh, you know, been nailed to a cross. Maybe some, somebody could have been rejected by the chief priests, the elders. Well, well, let's just see what it would be and what are the odds of that happening just by someone fulfilling all of that. And as he did so, he decided there, they took a look at all the prophecies of the Old Testament, which in most estimates fall somewhere around 350 prophecies about Jesus that are clear about Jesus. I mean, there's some, you're like, come on, that's a stretch. You really think that's about Jesus? But, but these are pretty clear prophecies. And if they're not clear in some cases, they're referenced in the New Testament to make it clear that this was a prophecy about Jesus. So you take those 350 prophecies, now to fulfill them all, which he did, and there are plenty of, of uh, biblical references, and it's a fun study to do, but, but if you just take eight of the more famous ones, and eight of the ones that aren't requiring something super duper natural to occur. All right. So like eight core ones. And then just let's look at the probability of each of those of, of someone being able to, to fulfill that prophecy. So here, here and, and by the way, he did this with his class and his cl he was a, a mathematics professor. He did it with his class and then he took all of their results and he made them even more conservative. 
So I'll, I'll give you an example just on the first one. I'll belabor it on the first one. So Micah 5.2, one of the more famous prophecies that had everybody on the edge of their seat in first century Israel of wondering, could the Messiah be coming or not? And one of the things was, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from, for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So that then became a real touch point of people wondering, could it be the Messiah or not? And this was clearly a, a, a messianic prophecy, and Jesus would have to fulfill that. And so uh, the, the question is, from this, if, if one man in how many the world over has born in Bethlehem, right? That, that, that's all that we're looking for in terms of what is the percentage of this happening. And so the best estimate can come from an attempt to find the average population of Bethlehem from Micah down to the, the present time, divided by the average population of the earth during the same period. And so one member of his class was was uh, an assistant in the library. He was assigned to get all the information. And he went to the next meeting and he reported it that the best determination of that ratio could be 1 in 280,000. Since the population of the earth has averaged less than 2 billion, the population of Bethlehem has averaged less than 7,150. Then the answer could be expressed by 7,150 divided by 2 billion or... 2.8 times 10 to the 5th, or 280,000. Okay, so I, I don't even know if that was super clear to you. But it was just taking objective data as close as they could. I mean, these students weren't even necessarily religious. They just wanted to have objective data just to see how does the math play itself out. They considered it a fun exercise. But he then did this 12 times over, and he took the data from all 12 of his classes and, and, and all of his students and assistant uh, graduate students that worked together to come up with this data. So here's, here's the first. The, the second prophecy, and again, Jesus explained to them all things in scriptures concerning himself that he would then um, fulfill. Uh, Micah 3, uh, Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So how many people in the history of the world have had a forerunner, have had a herald come before them? And you know this is one man in how many has had someone come as a herald to prepare the way before him? And they, they, they went through and they looked at historical uh, situations of, of great leaders and those that were, in a sense, announced by others that would be forerunners that would come before them. And they, they, they agreed as the number being one in 1,000. And, and yet they, they decided, let's just be conservative on, uh, on this. And, uh, because the, the number was by, by their students, I'm sorry, the number by their students was, was much, much beyond that. Um, they, they thought the number would be much, much larger. But anyway, they, they kept it to, to, to one in 1,000. Um, another one, uh, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't it amazing, by the way, how like exactly these prophecies are even fulfilled by Jesus? So they thought, well, hey, what are the chances that when the Messiah comes into Jerusalem, he's going to do it on the colt of a little donkey? And they're like, you know what? They're astronomical, but... What if kind of it's not just probabilistic, but actually somebody has a bit of intentionality and that they might want to 
in a sense, know that somebody comes in on a cult. So they even tried to factor that in, that it's not just kind of random chance in these situations, but somebody might actually try to do a little something-something to, to see these fulfilled. And so even if there was somebody trying, in a sense, to do this, we'll, we'll, we'll knock it down instead of 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 100. So a very conservative number there. Okay? And I'm not going to belabor all the other ones. I'll just read them to you. Uh, if someone asks, what are these wounds on your body? They will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Zechariah 13.6. And again, that's talking about how many people would have been crucified and would, would have been, um, you know, one in 1,000 is, is obviously a very conservative estimate. Uh, Zechariah 11.12. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. The, the, the very price that was uh, uh, for, for him. Um, oh, connection lost. You know what? I'm going to need your help. See those arrows? Thank you, my friend. Uh, next. Uh, Zechariah 11.13, the next. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Exactly what happened, right? In, into the potter's field. What, what did Judas do? He threw them there. Uh, what are the chances? You know, the chances are like off the charts. And, and, when, and when the students calculated the chances, it, it really had, you know, three or four more zeros after it. Conservatively, one in 100,000. Next slide, please. So seventh of the eighth. He was oppressed and afflicted, Isaiah 53. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Uh, you know, again, what are the chances that on a trial that he'll remain silent during, during all of the events of the trial? What are the chances that the Messiah would be put on trial uh, before his oppressors and before, before Israel? Um, again, astronomical, but they, they put it at one in a thousand. And then finally, uh, Psalm 22. There's so much in Psalm 22, by the way. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Even more unbelievably throughout that psalm, it even talks of, if you are the king of Israel, come down now and we'll believe in you. I mean, I mean things that could only have been fulfilled by his enemies, who have every motivation to not see them fulfilled. And in here you see that, hey, the, the chances of, of someone having their hands and their feet pierced, as well as the rest of what happens in Psalm 22, one in 10,000, again, a very, very conservative number. Uh, by, by any objective standards by which you would look at, at how some of these things would happen. So now if you're going to see, can somebody just take those eight, some of the more famous eight that we have, and we're not even talking virgin birth. We're not even talking raised from the dead. We're not talking ascended. None of those things are in play right here. These are very naturalistic things that could have occurred to basic human beings. And we just took those, which is what I love about the study that they did. But now... If you're to try to figure out what are the chances of one person accomplishing all of those, you don't just add up all of the, uh, all of the different probabilities. So let's say, a, as an example, um, what, what are the odds of, of a man being bald? You know, and as I, I look across here, let's say it's um, one in ten or something, right? Uh, so one in ten, but, and, which makes it special. But, so let's say, what are the, what are the odds... Of, of, of also a man having lost a finger, right? So let's say that's like one in a thousand, right? And, and now what are the chances 
of there being a bald man who lost a finger. It's not one in 1,100 or, or one in 10, uh, 1,010. It, you have to multiply the one in 10 by the one in 1,000. And you get one in 10,000. And so Paul Hutchins is apparently one in 10,000. <laughs> and, but but that, that, that is the, the, the chances of that. So what you would have to do is then take the, the chances of being born in Bethlehem, having been uh, crucified, coming on a call, all of those things that we saw. You, you multiply all of those chances, and what do you end up with? 2.8 times 10 to the 28th. Or something like 280 quadrillion, I think, is, is actually the, the appropriate term for this. Now, that number doesn't even mean anything to you, right? You don't have it in your bank account. You've never counted that high. You never had a deal. You never had a deal with numbers like this. So here's the, the brilliance of what, what Stoner and his, and his students did. They said, how do we dimensionalize this so that we can see what are the chances of just kind of blind, crazy luck that somebody could fulfill all of these simple eight, not 350, just eight of these prophecies about Jesus as Jesus unfold all the scriptures to Mary and Clopas. What are the chances as they stood there that maybe he just fulfilled these out of chance? Well, here's, here's the way that um, the Stoner's students uh, thought of this. He said, take the state of Texas and then... Measure two feet deep in the state of Texas, all throughout the entire state of Texas, and then, oops, sorry, I had an extra slide in there. Then take two feet deep and fill it with gold dollar coins to the depth of two feet. Now, think of the entire state of Texas filled to, to waiting depth for you with gold coins. And then, because that's 200, 2.8 times 10 to the whatever it was, 28th number of coins that, that are there right now. But then just take one coin and put a red dot on it and go ahead and drop it randomly into that, that, that whole pile as well. All right? And then, after having done that, shake up the whole thing. Really, really make it uh, random. And, and then they let that kind of just disappear into it all. And then grab someone, grab your, 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 your favorite uh, skeptic of any sort, blindfold them, and then tell them, here's what you can do. You can kind of rummage around the entire state of Texas as much as you like. Go up to the Panhandle, uh, head over to El Paso, go on down to Corpus Christi, make your way over to Tyler, Texas, go through Dallas, go through San... All, just make your way through the entire state of Texas... And reach down at some point in time, blindfolded, and just grab a coin from among that group. Now, the chance of picking out in that entire vastness of Texas, the one coin that has the red dot on it, is more likely than Jesus fulfilling just these eight prophecies. Not by chance. And... It's no wonder that so many historians have said the best documented evidence of an historical event is Jesus Christ. And for Jesus to have fulfilled these prophecies, which required his enemies 
to bring about the fulfillment in almost every one of the, the major prophecies that we looked at. For Jesus to fulfill these in, in the ways that he does is not by chance. We're not here by some happy accident. We are here by the design of God. He's always wanted to reverse the curse. It's always been his vision, not only for all of humanity, but for your life as well. This has been brought about courtesy of the sovereignty of God. And we're along for the ride. And it has helped us in our faith. Here's my simple charge from, from all of this. Besides being astounded by, by the scriptures and by Jesus, is next year, as you decide to read through the Old Testament, whatever you do, however much of the Old Testament you read, and I hope it's all, is keep goggles on where you're looking all the time to see Jesus in those scriptures. And to have your heart burning within you as you see Jesus and you realize that all of this is not by chance. All of this is by God's design. And he has arranged on top of all of that time and place for you specifically to know all of this, see all of this, have your eyes open, marvel at all of this, and declare to the rest of the world, it is true. He has risen. He has... We're going to try it one last time. It's true. He is risen. All right, one more time. It's all true. He's risen. He's risen. Amen.